Last week, we looked at the first six verses of chapter 63, and there we consider the very difficult topic of God's wrath. But it is also a very necessary topic because God's wrath is His holy and just response to man's sin. And we saw, although it is a very difficult topic to reflect upon, it is so necessary because a God without wrath is a God who does not care about evil. A God without wrath is a God who will not honor His promises to His Son to make the nations fall before Him and acknowledge Him as Lord and God. And God without wrath is a faithless God who will not keep His promise to save His people to the uttermost and to deliver them from all their enemies. And so it is true, the topic of God's wrath is a very difficult topic, but we found it very necessary. It is what God reveals about Himself, and it is so foundational to our future glory. And we can clearly see here that Isaiah took the message to heart. And from what he uh, says in the rest of chapter 63 and 64, we realize that Isaiah took the message of God's wrath to heart, and he knew that he himself had no way to answer God's holy wrath, and that Isaiah's only hope was God's mercy. And indeed, it is to that, it is to God's mercy that Isaiah brings us this morning. And so the first thing that we reflect upon this morning is God's steadfast love. God's steadfast love. Now, if you remember a few weeks ago when we were considering the anointed ones, the Messiah's zeal to rescue completely his people, Zion and Jerusalem, and to bring them everlasting glory. In his zeal, he appointed watchmen. And so in chapter 62, verse 6, we saw how the anointed one, he says, I have said, watchmen, you who put the Lord in remembrance Take no rest and give him no rest. You see, the Lord, the Messiah, he anoints people, his people, to pray without ceasing, take no rest, and give him no rest. Give God no moment of quiet, as it were. Keep praying to him. And now, in chapter 63, verse 7, we read, I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord. And the word recount is, in Hebrew, actually the same word as we saw in chapter 62. You who put the Lord in remembrance. You who put the Lord in remembrance, in chapter 62, it's the same word that is used in chapter 63, I will recount. 
that is to bring to remembrance the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord. That is to say, the watchman's task, the faithful ones who have committed their hearts and lives to God, their calling and their task is to ceaselessly, without taking a break, tell the Lord about his own steadfast love. That's the calling and the task of God's people, to tell God about his own steadfast love without ceasing. But why does God need a reminder that he is the steadfast one? And why does he need us to tell him that his steadfast love brings him praise? Has the Lord forgotten who he is? Is that how he is turned back from his wrath by us reminding him, no, no, please, take it easy. Remember that you are the, the, the merciful one, so please be done with all this wrath business. Is that why we are reminding him that he is the steadfast, loving one? Well, it seems to me in this passage, um, one reason really stands out. Why it is that God has both commanded his people, take no rest and give him no rest, to recount his steadfast love. And the reason is, is that Isaiah experienced profound discouragement in his life. You see, he was chosen to serve the Lord, to lead God's people back to God. But for his entire life, his ministry fell on deaf ears. He had very little to show for it. And he had to witness how God's chosen nation would cast off its holy calling. And as a result of that, was now suffering the very preventable consequences of her rebellion. And not only Isaiah, but those that were like-minded as Isaiah, those who were committed to the Lord, the godly, you know, they struggled with the fact that the Lord, He's the sovereign God. Oh, that you would rend the heavens, they say. They knew that God is the sovereign God who could have prevented disaster, who had the power to let righteousness flourish, but for some inexplicable reason, reasons that they could not understand. The sovereign God who had the power to prevent evil, who had the ability to, to make his people righteous, he didn't do that. He let his people wander and suffer the consequences of their rebellion. And so Isaiah, and along with him the godly, were baffled by the way that God governed the world. And maybe some of you can relate. Don't you have that feeling you look around you and you realize there are so many things that are terribly wrong, and God has the power. Why doesn't he act? 
And all this is to say, Isaiah and the godly, they experience profound discouragement in their lives. And you know, discouragement is the enemy of prayer. Isaiah and the godly, they were disheartened by pain and suffering. And they were disappointed because their good hopes and dreams were both denied and dashed to pieces. You know, the things that they desire, to see God's name being honored, to see righteousness flourish, these are not sinful desires that were denied them. They were godly, good, and beautiful desires. But these desires and these hopes were denied them. Discouragement. And that is why God commands them, take no rest and give him no rest. And that is why Isaiah now says, I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord. Because you see, recounting God's steadfast love, remembering his covenant mercies, that word steadfast love, it's the Hebrew word behind it is kezat. It's sometimes translated as his steadfast love. Sometimes it's translated as his covenant mercies. All that is to say, it's God's promise to his people to treat them with the kindness that they have not deserved and to treat them with goodness that they cannot ever dare imagine or hope. And it is recounting God's steadfast love that is the only cure when discouragement silences our prayers. And that is why Isaiah remembers God's past faithfulness during Exodus. And he says, in all their affliction, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. Now, in the Old Testament, we time to time come across a figure that is uh, called either the angel of the Lord or the angel of his presence. It's literally the angel of his face. And this is an interesting, fascinating, and maybe even a mysterious figure because this angel of the Lord or this angel of his presence, at times, he would speak as though he were himself the Lord. And at other times, he would speak as someone who was other than the Lord and distinct from the Lord. And it's a little hard to get our head around it until you realize that this is the Old Testament anticipating Jesus Christ. And this is the pre-incarnate 
meaning the coming and the appearing of the, the, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, before he became a human person. This angel of his presence was the Lord Jesus, who, as the second member of the Trinity and one with God, would at times speak as though he were the Lord himself. But as a distinct person from the Father, at other times he would speak as someone other than and distinct from the Lord. And at the time when God brought Israel out of their bondage in Egypt, this angel of his presence was with his people. And it is the angel of his presence who makes the face of the Lord clear to his people. And so during the time of Exodus, this pre-incarnate Christ shared, Isaiah says, he shared in all their affliction. He made the sufferings of his people his own suffering. In whatever way they were afflicted, he put himself in their position, and he was afflicted too. And this is the same Lord, this is the same Christ who would later say in the New Testament, do you remember in Acts chapter 9, Saul, so enraged against Christ and Christians that he had received permission from the religious leaders, and he was on his way to imprison and persecute Christians. To that Saul, the Lord Jesus says from heaven, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You see, Saul was on his way to persecute Christians. But the Lord Jesus, in whatever his people suffer, he considers it his own suffering. In whatever ways his people are afflicted, Jesus is himself afflicted. And so Jesus, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, he's the one who makes the face of God clear to us. And he tells us, whatever breaks our heart, breaks his heart too. In whatever ways we hurt, it almost sounds criminal to say this, but in every way that we hurt, Jesus hurts And you know, that is his steadfast love, to know that Jesus does not leave us when we suffer, and Jesus does not forget us when we hurt, and Jesus is with us when we are crushed, when we are disappointed, when we are discouraged. When we are in darkness, he has made himself so one with us that he is there with us. And you know, that is the encouragement that keeps us praying in darkness. And that is why the Lord says, take no rest. Give him no rest. Tell him, tell him about his steadfast love. Because in the very act of telling him, you know, God doesn't need a reminder. But whatever and everything he commands us to do, you know, he does that for our good. Take 
no rest. Give him no rest. Remind them of his steadfast love. For in doing so, we find encouragement in every affliction, every trial, every discouragement. And that is how God restores our hope. And so that is the first thing that we see God's steadfast love. And I might say before we move on, if you are discouraged, if you are experiencing disappointment and pain and hurt, loved ones, the thing that you need to do more than anything is to think about God's steadfast love and tell him about it. But unfortunately, that's not all there is to these passages because the second thing we see, the first thing we saw, we saw God's steadfast love. The second thing we see is our steadfast rebellion. And so the question is this, is that really enough? Is it really enough For such sinners like you and me, is this enough to simply lean on and rely on and remember God's steadfast love? Because notice chapter 63, verse 10. But they rebelled and grieved His Holy Spirit. Therefore, He turned to be their enemy and Himself fought against them. You see, they rebelled against God, not out of ignorance, but Israel rebelled against God in full knowledge of what God had done for them. And so Israel, of all people, should have been loyal and true. But Isaiah says, but they rebelled and grieved His Holy Spirit. That is to say, they repaid God's kindness with treachery. And they returned his favor by grieving his Holy Spirit. Now, isn't it fascinating how the triune God makes a full appearance in this passage? Just a moment ago, we thought about the angel of his presence. And now, Isaiah tells us that Israel grieved his Holy Spirit. Only a person can be grieved, and the Holy Spirit was grieved by Israel's sin against the Lord. In other words, all three persons of one God loved Israel with a steadfast love. And Israel sinned against all three persons of the one God. If so, is mercy even possible against such great sin? And we read how God only blesses under specific circumstances. Chapter 64, verse 5. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. That's the condition upon which God blesses his people. But Isaiah continues, but behold, you are angry and we sinned. In our sins, we have been a long time 
and shall we be saved? Because Isaiah is now realizing that the only thing that matches God's steadfast love in its commitment, in its durability, is Israel's steadfast rebellion. So how can such people be saved? Now, this is precisely at the point you might say, well, Isaiah, aren't you going a little overboard? Is, is this a rhetorical effect that you are trying to accomplish here? Is it really as bad as you make it sound? I mean, don't we have some redeeming qualities that, that please God? And in the very next verse, this is what Isaiah says. We have all become like one who is unclean. You know, in the Old Testament, the lepers cried out, unclean, unclean. And when Isaiah met the holy God in chapter 6, he realized that he was a spiritual leper, and he said, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. And Isaiah says here, we have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Now notice what Isaiah says. He does not say that our sin is like a polluted garment, but he rather says all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. You know, it's not the worst things about us the things of which we are ashamed that invite God's wrath. Rather, it is the things that we are proud of, the things that we consider our best qualities and best accomplishments. It is those things that call God's wrath upon us. And can you imagine a situation? You went to a restaurant, a nice restaurant. You sat down and ordered a nice meal. And it came out looking beautifully, wonderfully, uh, uh, in wonderful presentation. And as you were about to take your first bite, somebody tells you, you know, the chef hasn't washed his hands for about a few weeks. And this meal is made out of the produce that was kept where the rats nest. Would you take a bite? At that point, it doesn't matter how well that meal is presented. It's tainted. It's dirty. There's not enough dressing up that you can do to make that meal acceptable. And in a similar way, Isaiah here calls our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment because everything that we do, even the best parts about us, our best accomplishment, the thing that we are most proud of, they all issue from our sinful and rebellious heart, and that imparts upon them the qualities that the holy God cannot overlook or stomach. You know, you and I, we cannot dress up our sins enough to make them acceptable to God. And that is the condition and the result and the consequence of sin. 
But thanks be to God, that's not where Isaiah ends either, because it brings us to the third and the last point, which is a steadfast comfort. You know, that's our fear too, because you and I as Christians, when we sin, we realize we are not sinning in ignorance. We sin against knowledge. We of all people who should repay to God his grace and his kindness with loyalty, with dedication. When we sin against that gracious God, we grieve the Holy Spirit. So how can we hope that there is enough mercy to cover our sins? Beloved ones, that is precisely why we recount God's mercies. And here Isaiah ends with a plea at the end of chapter 64. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. You see, even amidst sin, Isaiah calls God a father. Because the point is that children, children can always come home. No matter what they have done. No matter what mess they have made of their lives. Children can always come home. You know, that's, that's really the story of the prodigal son, isn't it? The younger son who goes away, and in going away, he dishonored his father, caused great damage to his father. And once he comes to his senses, finally, he hits rock bottom. And then realize, what a fool I was. I will go back to my father, and he prepares a speech. I have sinned against and against heaven. That's what he was going to say, except the father had been waiting for him. And the father does not care to listen to the speech. It was enough that his son was returning home, and he runs to him, and he opens his, his arms wide as he opens his heart, and he welcomes his prodigal son back. And that's why Isaiah calls here you, you. You are our Father. You know, that's exactly what we are afraid of. We as Christians, we sin, and we are afraid that, that we have sinned too much. We have sinned against knowledge. We have repaid God's grace with treachery. How can there be mercy for us? But God is our Father, and you can always come home. Or to put it differently, clay, it has no shape or form or beauty inherent in it. But a skillful potter can turn it into a thing of usefulness and beauty. And yes, the question is exactly that. How can sinners such as you and I, who sin against knowledge, who repay God's kindness with 
disobedience? How can we entertain such a hope? How can God save such a people and make them beautiful? And the answer, if it isn't already clear here, Jesus puts it so clearly in Luke chapter 19, verse 10. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Children can turn to their father with faith and repentance and come home. Jesus was afflicted with our sins that he may carry us. And when we look at Jesus, we see God face to face. And he tells us just as he did in the wilderness to make for yourself a glorious name. That is, Jesus was with his people, walking with them, being afflicted with them, suffering with them, carrying them in order to make for himself a glorious name. In other words, there is no other name that Jesus cherishes more, and there is no other name that brings him more glory than that Jesus should be called the Savior of sinners. That is the name that he most cherishes. That is the name that brings him most glory. And so, loved ones, let me say this to you. Let sin and shame no more keep you from Jesus. Our sins are indeed very great. But Jesus, he is a greater Savior. And he has staked his glory on your redemption and peace. And let this Jesus, let this Jesus be your encouragement. And let this Jesus encourage you to seek him always. Amen. Now let's pray together. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for being our amazing and gracious Savior. Lord, it, it, it weighs upon our heart how great our sins are against you. It weighs heavily on our heart that we, that we repay your kindness with disobedience, and we are ashamed and we are afraid that we may have just exhausted your grace, and your mercies. So thank you for reminding us today that we can always come home to your loving embrace. Thank you for reminding us this morning that Jesus, there is grace that never runs out in him. There is mercy that never runs out. So Father, would you please encourage your people this morning, all those who are afflicted with sin, with shame, and with guilt, May they find joy, rest, and grace from you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.